isn't it weird it's August and it's dumping down rain outside of it's hard for me to wrap my mind around well Pastor Kevin earlier read from, uh, he read all of Matthew 7. This morning we're going to be looking at uh, verses 1 through 6. And this passage contains probably the most popular Bible text in 21st century America. Judge not. Do not judge. Many Americans assume that these words mean that Christians are violating their own religion when we speak out against things as abortion, sexual immorality and all of its flavors and alphabet, drunkenness, drug abuse, or any other moral issue. Don't judge, we're told over and over again. But as we're going to see, that's a really, really shallow interpretation of Jesus' words. And it's a shallow interpretation of Jesus' words, but um, it's also a very shallow interpretation of, of any words to just isolate the first two words from the rest of what goes after it. Think about the First Amendment to our own Constitution that's enshrined in our Bill of Rights. Congress shall shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. So if we applied the hermeneutical principle of those who constantly say, do not judge, do not judge, do not judge, to the First Amendment, we'd have to say, Congress shall make no law. Full stop. And therefore, every time Congress makes a law, it's violating the First Amendment. And obviously, that's ridiculous. Nobody really believes that. And the reason that we know that's not the case is because just in the normal uh, business of interpreting any kind of literature, there are three main principles. Context, context, context. You, You don't just take two words out of context and Run with those. And that's what people in our day and age have done. Do not judge. But still, Jesus' words, judge not or do not judge, mean something very important. And so uh, let's look carefully at Jesus' words in their context and seek to understand what our Savior requires of us. So judging others is the theme, verses 1 through 6. And uh, the first thing here that we see is beware of a judgmental attitude, verses 1 and 2. So we're letting the cat out of the bag really early. That's really what Jesus is saying. 
Beware of a judgmental attitude. Judge not, the first two words in our English Bibles there in verse 1, judge not does not mean that we aren't allowed to reach moral conclusions, to say that something is right and its opposite is wrong. For example, in the context, uh, if you look in verse 6, and we're going to spend more time there in a few minutes, but verse 6 requires a form of judgment. Do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. We're going to talk more about what that means, but that requires some judgment, some discernment. Later on in verses 15 and 16, there's judgment that's required. We're supposed to uh, identify false prophets. We're supposed to evaluate their fruit, the fruit of their teaching. And in Matthew chapter 18, we can turn there real quick. Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 17. Jesus said, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. That requires some discernment. It requires judgment. What is sin and what is not sin? If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he, if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. That's massive judgment going on there. Because at the end of the process laid out by Jesus in Matthew chapter 18, the church is saying, no matter what you profess, your ongoing stubborn sin says you're not a believer. And therefore, we're putting you out of the fellowship of the church. So th these are just some examples of um, the Bible telling us as believers that we must judge. We're called to judge with a certain attitude in certain situations for a certain purpose. So if that's not what Jesus means, don't ever judge in, in any circumstance for any reason. Don't make any moral distinctions at all. If that's not what Jesus means, then what does he mean? Well, looking back at the passage, judge not that you be not judged. And then verse 2 develops that. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. When we judge others, Jesus says, we subject ourselves to the same standard of judgment 
but not just by other people, by God himself. So this is a built-in limiting principle to discourage us from judging others. It's going to come back to us. Uh, the Apostle Paul wrote about this in Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. We'll just look at a few verses here. So Romans chapter 2 and verse 1. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Why? Because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Now this same apostle in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 reproves the church in Corinth because they were tolerating sexual sin among their members. There was a man who had his father's wife and Paul commanded the church to judge that man who is practicing sexual immorality by putting him outside of the, the church. So in that situation, they were commanded to judge. But here, Paul says, don't judge. But the reason is the same reason that Jesus gives. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Skip down to verse 3. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself? that you will escape the judgment of God? So back in Matthew chapter 7, when Jesus says, uh, by the same standard that you judge others, it's going to be measured back to you. Paul is specific here. It will be measured back to us by God. And then uh, skipping down to verses 21 through 23 in Romans chapter 2. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. And then Paul continues. So here's the long and the short of it. Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through, through 2. Basically, when we judge others, there's this feedback circuit that's supposed to alert our conscience that we will be judged according to the same standard by which we judge others. Jesus wants us to be alert to that feedback circuit. He wants us to be in tune to that feedback circuit. And what's the result? The result should be an attitude that says, who am I to judge someone else? I've got enough on my plate 
with my own responsibility to love God, to love others, to watch out for sin in my own heart, which if we're honest with ourselves, is a full-time job, and to observe all that the Lord has taught us. That's a lot. God will take care of that, others, that other person's sin. Either in the cross, which is what we pray for, or in the lake of fire. But one way or another, God, the righteous judge, will sort out what's going on with that other person. I don't have the bandwidth for it. That's the attitude of the gospel. That's the attitude that Jesus is teaching his followers here in Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. So beware of a judgmental attitude. Yes, it's true that judge not is not to be taken absolutely, without qualification. But Jesus does say, judge not. We should beware. Christians who have been saved by the grace of God, recognizing God's free gift to hell-deserving sinners like us, those who recognize how much God has forgiven us, we should be the last persons, the last people who are eager to point out someone else's sin, eager to condemn someone else because God's been so merciful to us. Beware of a judgmental attitude. Jesus goes on now in verses three through five to teach us to Judge yourself first. Judge yourself first. And he uses the language of hyperbole here. This is a, an intentional exaggeration to make a point. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not, do not notice the log or beam that is in your own eye. This is hyperbole. It's also supposed to be funny. The, the sight of this scene is supposed to be funny. Imagine somebody with this big old beam that would support a roof over a structure, a house. You've, you've got this beam in your eye, and how can you do that? It's 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 ridiculous. It's, a, it's hyperbolic. But there you are with this giant beam in your eye, and for some reason, you're interested in the speck, a piece of sawdust in your brother's eye. Jesus is trying to get us to see how ridiculous that is. Continuing on in verse 4. Or how can you say to your brother... Let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the, the log or beam in your own eye. Imagine if someone comes up to you 
with this big old beam in their eye, and they, and they want to do microscopic surgery to remove that piece of sawdust from your eye. You'll have nothing to do with it. And that's what Jesus wants to get us to see. What's the conclusion? Verse 5. You hypocrite. By the way, that's not a compliment. That's not a positive reaffirming thing that Jesus is saying there. Those who uh, judge as Jesus is teaching against, he calls hypocrites. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. R.C. Sproul had this to say in his commentary on Matthew. When we have planks in our eyes, we consider them specks. Isn't that true? We tend to minimize our own sin and maximize or optimize someone else's sins. When we see specks in others' eyes, we view them as planks. That is how sin destroys human relationships and community. And that is why Jesus is warning us to be careful. If we adopt a judgmental spirit toward others, what goes around is going to come around and we will be judged. It's a great way to summarize Jesus' teaching here in these first five verses. Here's a really good illustration from the ministry of Jesus himself. It's a familiar story, but let's look at it together. John chapter 8. John chapter 8. Jesus wants us to be like him in this regard. And I know there, um, there's manuscript difficulties here with the story, I believe that whether this uh, story is actual, was actually in the original manuscripts of Matthew is an issue, but I believe that this event actually happened, and that's why it was so prevalent uh, in the early church. So either this, this uh, was actually a part of Matthew's original manuscript or it wasn't, but in either case, I believe this story happened. So Matthew, uh, John chapter 8. They uh, went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount, Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. And all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees, who were famous for being judgmental, they were infamous for justifying themselves that they were righteous and looking down their noses at everybody else. So the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst. They said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now think about that. How would, how would these men catch this woman in the act 
of committing adultery. Let me suggest to you that they were on the lookout. They were looking for this. Maybe they were even looking through the window in her house or whosever house this, this took place in. And they were on the lookout for her sin to catch her, not because they actually cared for the woman, not because in love they wanted to speak the truth to her and in love they wanted to lead her to repentance. They wanted to see her restored. No, they were on the lookout to catch her in her sin because they hated her and they hated Jesus. And they were going to use her as a tool in their plot to catch Jesus in his words. That's what was going on. That's the heart that Jesus is teaching against on the Sermon on the Mount. That's the heart that he's warning against when he says, do not judge lest you be judged. But the story goes on. They said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? And obviously what they're trying to do is to get Jesus to contradict Moses so that then they can say, ah, see, he's not a true prophet. He's teaching us to go against the law of Moses. What they really want is to be able to stone him. Verse 6, this they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. That's what their motive was. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And uh, you know what was suggested to me reading the uh, commentaries this week? There's no way to prove this. In fact, I think it was R.C. Sproul who suggested this, that when Jesus is writing on the ground with his finger, R.C. Sproul suggests he's writing their sins. He's writing down what they're guilty of. Whether that's true or not, verse 7, and as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 7, is trying to get us to have his spirit and not the spirit of the, the scribes and the Pharisees. To have his redeeming spirit that is not trying to condemn other people 
When we do speak out against sin, it's because we're not trying to condemn, we're not trying to destroy, we're not trying to say that we're righteous and no one else is. And he doesn't want us to be like the Pharisees who spend a lot of time and energy scrupulously dissecting the lives and actions and words of others so that they have material with which to condemn them. Back in Matthew chapter 7, we come to verse 6. Jesus says, do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw pearls before pigs lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. That almost seems like it comes at us from left field. Here Jesus is telling us not to judge, to be careful. Then he's talking about not giving dogs what is holy and not casting our pearls before pigs. Whoa. Doesn't seem to fit. But it does fit. Here's the word picture. Dogs and pigs. Do not give, give dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before pigs. So dogs and pigs have no concept of the value of holy or expensive things. Dogs and pigs were, were not um, these, these animals that were esteemed by the Jews. Like in our day and age, we have a high view of horses, for example. And we have a much higher view of dogs than they did to us, a dog is man's best friend. To them, dogs were scavengers, mongrels. You didn't typically have a dog as a pet, but they just roamed the streets looking for scraps, and you didn't mess with them. They were more like wild dogs in Africa that you didn't mess with. And of course, pigs... Pigs were not kosher. They were officially unclean. And so, to throw a dog in that day and age, something like unleavened bread, prepared for the Passover meal, or in the sake of Christians, prepared for the Lord's Supper, <coughs> the dog would sooner attack you as thank you. You wouldn't think of doing such a thing, tossing something holy to a dog. Or imagine tossing a fine pearl in front of a pig, being completely insensible to the value of the pearl, the pig will simply trample it underfoot, walk right over it like it's a rock or a dirt clod or something else like that, a cricket. But dogs and pigs 
have no sense of the value of holy things. Whoa, why do I have a thing about water up here? The roof's leaking. So how does this fit in? How does this apply to us or to Jesus' immediate uh, hearers? He, it is a command, don't give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs. And he's not talking about animals, I promise you. It's, it's a metaphor, it's a figure of speech. So in the immediate context, to give dogs what is holy or to throw pearls before pigs means to um, say something that is holy and valuable and precious to somebody who's, who's not going to receive it, but instead they're going to trample it underfoot or, or attack you with it. And in the immediate context, maybe he has the scribes and the Pharisees in mind. The, the very people who were so infamous for their judgmental attitude. They were the ones who were humanly responsible for Jesus' death. They hated Jesus. They would have stoned him to death. And they got something that they thought was even better. Jesus was crucified. And so his people weren't to feel guilty because they're not out evangelizing the Pharisees. That seems to be what Jesus is saying. This is a person who repeatedly attacks you for speaking the truth in love or repeatedly rejecting the gospel. You're not obligated to keep saying the same thing to the same person who keeps attacking you and keeps rejecting God's word. That doesn't mean that God is done with the person. Think about Paul, the Apostle Paul, who was himself a Pharisee and who tried to destroy the church so that Christians were afraid of him. There probably weren't a lot of Christians evangelizing Saul of Tarsus. But Jesus had a plan. And Jesus appeared to Saul when he was on the road to Damascus to carry out his plan of persecuting the church. Jesus saved Saul, and then he sent Saul to a Christian, Ananias, to be baptized. But that's a perfect case in point. The, the Christians who were rightly afraid of Saul of Tarsus didn't need to feel guilty because they didn't feel compelled to go knocking on Saul's door Hi, Saul, I'm here to share the gospel with you. That was putting your life at risk. But God wasn't done with Saul of Tarsus. And in a similar way, if there is a person who acts like a spiritual dog or pig, who does not 
appreciate the holy things that you have to say. The, the pearl of great price, the message of the gospel itself. There comes a time when you should just hold your peace and stop. For the sake of the gospel and its holiness, its value, <coughs> pardon me, I would take a drink, but but also for the sake of that person's heart because you don't want that person continually hardening their own heart. But remember, if you pull back, that doesn't mean that God is going to pull back. And God is able to save even the hardest-hearted sinner, unbeliever, like the Apostle Paul, he did. There could come a time for you to hold your peace for now, thank you, and let God work through someone else. Thank you, here's this cup. Oh, whoops. <laughs> thank you, brother. With God as my witness, I really don't do that on purpose. I don't know how it happens. It's like when... Um, if you're riding a bicycle or a motorcycle and you're out off-road and you see a rock, okay, I'm going to avoid that rock, I'm going to avoid that rock. So sometimes you go right at the rock. All right, so that's the teaching. Right, so um, that point is don't share truth with truth-rejecting people. That's the point of verse 6. All right, so that's the passage. I, I like to always bring this back to well, what did Jesus do? Think about what Jesus did that embodies this teaching. For one thing, Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. Jesus did not come into this world as a judgmental person but as a saving person, as the Savior, in fact. And then during his earthly ministry, he reserved his harshest rebukes for those who self-righteously judged others. And we're going to see that as we continue on through Matthew's gospel. On the other hand, he was a friend to tax collectors, harlots, and sinners who were interested in what he had to say. Doesn't mean that Jesus approved of their sin. Doesn't mean that Jesus participated with them in their sin. But they apparently were interested in what Jesus had to say. And Jesus spent time with them and ate with them. And his enemies hated him because of that. But the most important thing that Jesus did was to endure God's righteous judgment in our place. That is the heart of the Christian message. The heart of the Christian message is not, let's all go do what the Sermon on the Mount says we should do. That's moralism. 
That's human righteousness. But ultimately, even the teaching of Jesus is supposed to lift our eyes to a righteousness that surpasses and transcends human righteousness. Jesus wants to lift our eyes to the very righteousness of God, to the righteousness that he gives as a gift, a righteousness that we receive by faith, not that we accomplish. And that is because Jesus endured God's righteous judgment in our place. And I'm going to read to you some passages from Isaiah chapter 53. Check it out in your own time. The New Testament applies Isaiah chapter 53 to Jesus, for example, 1 Peter 2.24. But notice what the prophet Isaiah wrote about the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ some 700 years before the time of Christ. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. For the transgressions of my people, he was stricken, God said. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. He has made his soul an offering for sin. He shall bear their iniquities. He bore the sin of many. Put it all together. Jesus was judged, condemned for our sins in our place. The result of that is our justification, that God is able to maintain his holiness and righteousness while at the same time declaring us righteous. It's not because we actually are righteous. It's not because we actually do righteous things. It's because Jesus did this for us. And so God is both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That is what saving faith does. And that's what we as Christians call unbelievers too. We're not calling you to turn over a new leaf or to begin living in some wonderful way, to stop doing the things that you're doing and do something else. <coughs> That's the fruit. But the root is Jesus and his cross work. And here's the upshot of that. Realizing that Jesus was judged for our sins in our place. The upshot of that practically is if we really embrace that, then it completely drains the lifeblood out of our judgmental attitude. 
If Jesus was judged in my place, if I'm saved not by righteous things that I have done, but only because of his mercy, because Jesus died for an ungodly sinner like me, not as a result of works, apart from my works, if that's true, then where do I have the nerve to condemn somebody else? How do I have the nerve to be hard-hearted and unforgiving, looking down my nose at another fellow sinner? There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That sets us free in our relationship with God. But it also sets us free in our relationships, in our attitudes towards fellow sinners. May God help us that in our church, in our community, that when people come among us, yeah, they're going to feel conviction, but that's not our primary objective. When people come among us, may it be that they sense this atmosphere of acceptance, this, this attitude of humility from all of us, this uh, attitude that says, who am I to judge you? But there's the Savior who stood in my place and saved me. I want to introduce you to him so that you might be saved too. May people who rub shoulders with us get that attitude and not the attitude of the scribes and the Pharisees so that Jesus would be lifted up and sinners would be saved. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he laid down his life for the sheep. We thank you that indeed he was judged so that we would not be judged. He was condemned to deliver us from eternal condemnation. We thank you for his words. We pray that we would take them to heart and that we would be renewed, Lord, in our minds, that we would be transformed because of Jesus' words. Save sinners in our midst, Lord, and help us to walk in newness of life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.